DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way. I'm gonna fly higher. I'm gonna fly higher. Welcome to the Donald Thompson Podcast. I'm thrilled to have someone from my hometown, Pitt County, North Carolina, on the show. Tanya Williams and I went to Bible high schools at the time. She went to Conley and I went to Jage Rose in Greenville, North Carolina. It's been 25 years since she spoke. She's gone from Pitt County to the White House. Her career trajectory has been phenomenal. She reached out in her current role as a business leader on the legal affairs side for SoftBank to learn more about entrepreneurial spirit, minority businesses in North Carolina, and how she could help in her role. And it sparked a phenomenal conversation that you guys are gonna get a chance to hear from today. And I couldn't be more excited. I just had to get to know a little bit more about what she was doing and that trajectory to become the Director of Legislative Affairs for Vice President Joe Biden and the Obama administration. Top secret security clearance. Prior to working for our potential future president, Tanya went to undergrad and then law school at UNC Chapel Hill. Before starting her career, Tanya decided to backpack across China. Okay, that's just interesting. My mother was like, you're gonna do what? Like, you don't speak Chinese? You're from Pitt County, like, what are you doing? You just so you just gonna go. You just gonna show up with a backpack and a book and point to stuff, right? Okay, you're gonna die. Like, um, <laughs> I actually let me tell you this quick aside here. I actually had trouble getting across the border. They split us uh, up trying to get across the Chinese border, and told me that my visa wasn't valid. Sorry, there's nothing you can do except you're an American, and so you can find three thousand dollars, and we'll happily let you in. And I spent the day at the Chinese border, the land crossing, crying and begging and talking to people who at one point spoke Chinese and the next part they were like, I didn't speak English and begging and calling the embassy in Hanoi. And they were like, I mean, you can come back to Hanoi and fly out, but like, to them actually taking my visa over the Chinese border and saying, sure, you can go get it. And I was like, I'm just not trying to get shot in the back. Oh my God. <laughs> it doesn't seem wise. <laughs> what happened? 
at the end of the day, I think they just got tired and they were like, you can go. Like, they're like, she's obviously not gonna give us any money. Cause I was like, I, cause I had gone from being like weepy to like indignant. Like I will not <laughs> pay a bribe. <laughs> Definitely not getting money out of this one. So right. uh, yeah, I mean, just let her go. Like we gotta go, like it's dinner time. Like, let's go. When I think about, when I told my mother that story, cause I couldn't, you know, you can't tell her till you get home, right? Till you're sitting in front of her and she can like touch you and know that you're okay. Right. And she was just like, yeah, you're never leaving the house. Yeah, thing, right? If I can navigate things at the Chinese border, surely I can handle crazy partisanship here in Washington, right? But before she got to Washington, Tanya was the general counsel for the president of the Senate, the North Carolina Journal Assembly. She was director of intellectual property and policy for GlaxoSmithKline and ultimately got a call from Congressman G.K. Butterfield about being his chief of staff. I was working at GlaxoSmithKline doing international policy work at the time. And Congressman Butterfield called me and we knew, I didn't actually know him, but we knew all the same people. And he quite literally said, I keep hearing your name, you come talk to me, probably can't afford you. I was making more money than I ever was in my life. I was like, you sure can't, (laughs) right? But it was looking for doing some changes in his office and just wanted to talk. And we had this wonderful conversation about what he was doing and the opportunities that he had. And even though I hadn't worked in Congress before, the skills that I brought would be useful and the relationships that I had from North Carolina could be useful to him and his office. And so he took a chance on me. When he was looking for a new chief of staff, there was no shortage of folks who wanted to work for a member who was you know, Chief Deputy Whip, who was in leadership, who was on a, uh, what they call an A committee. He was on energy and commerce. He was a vice chair and he's from Wilson, <laughs> neighboring county. They took a chance on a girl from Pitt County <laughs> and brought me in as his chief of staff. And I think we we're both amazed with the work that we could do. So um, I'm definitely grateful for him. And then he let me go. And I ended up having a conversation with the vice president's chief of staff. And we're talking, I was kind of hanging out and leaning, slouching on the couch. (laughs) He was like, Greg, do you want to come work for us? And I was like, what? (laughs) Gather myself together. You know, and he just said, the things that you've done, the work that you've done, the, the work with the house, the vice president knows the Senate better than anybody will with 36 years of experience there. And So we could really use your help. And if you'll do this, you'll have an opportunity to work and learn the Senate. And it was incredible. Who doesn't do that, right? (laughs) Who doesn't take an opportunity? So I became the vice president's director of legislative affairs. It's one of the most interesting jobs, I think, in Washington, because you literally sit between the White House and Congress, because the vice president has multiple duties. So he is the vice president, so in the executive branch but he is also the president of the Senate. And then I also had the very coolest office I will ever have in my life, (laughs) right off the Senate floor. It was incredible. There was murals on the ceiling and Italian marble floors, a working fireplace. (laughs) It was very cool. Yeah, Uh, yeah, you got to send some pictures of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A fire that was built for you each day. It was fantastic. If I was cleaned every day, you come back and there's wood stacked ready to go the next day. It was pretty incredible. But I also had an office in the White House because as the vice president's legislative director, I was also a liaison for the White House. And working in that space and working with President Obama and Vice President Biden, who had just different skills 
different relationships that I think really complemented each other and allowed for the vice president to do you know, some really interesting work because of his background. And because I was his liaison there, I got to do and see a lot of different things and really carry some things over the finish line that meant a lot to him and meant a lot to me. That is awesome, right? I mean, that is uh, really cool. Let me ask this. I'm going to take us a little macro and you are very successful in what you do. You've had a lot of different opportunities on your path. And I'm certain that you've had to deal with being the only woman, the only African-American woman in areas that you've had to operate, right? Talk a little bit about kind of some of the macro events that we're faced with, some of the racial tension, for lack of a better way to describe it. But how has that applied to you in your career and allowed you to still keep pushing forward, still keep pushing upward, even though sometimes the deck may have been stacked against you or been a little bit harder or a lot harder? Yeah. No, it's a familiar place. It's a place that I found myself when I was in grade school with some of the classes that I was in. It is a place that I found myself in uh, social situations. I've just always been really interested in differences. And so, like, as I said, I'm always, I'm very curious. And so I like to ask questions and to find out, you know, more about, especially things that are, you know, in conflict. And so that's, that's really served me well, but it's difficult. I think that one of the things that's helped me, you know, so much is that my mom who grew up and she is a product of Farmville, North Carolina, down the way, and went to segregated schools and took her brothers and sisters, she's the oldest, took her brothers and sisters to school after desegregation and, you know, tells some just stories that just break your heart about how they were treated and the way that they had to, you know, speak to other people um, in the community, the way that some of the white people in the community spoke to her mom and how you had to keep your mouth shut and things. And, you know, it's very interesting. And through all that, she taught me, really, don't assume race, right? To really be mindful of it but just not to assume it and to work as hard as you can to prove yourself and look for opportunity. And that's kind of what I did. So, you know, in finding yourself as the only one, there's a burden to that sometimes, an unfair burden, because Black people are as diverse as you know, any other group of people and you don't represent, you don't know, you don't have the experience, you can't possibly speak for a, a whole dynamic you know, race of people. And so there's that side of it, but there are also stereotypes that you face and that you're aware of, such as in the legislative world, when you're debating something, when you're putting your point, when you're you know, arguing on behalf of your constituency, being forceful in that, having to talk to people you know, who have a great deal of authority, but knowing that if you speak in a certain way or, you know, or if you're too forceful, the stereotypes that people have you know, can be applied to you and what that means and how frustrating that is. (laughs) And so I think it just requires an extra level of creativity and it requires an extra layer of thinking. I think that's why I really enjoyed my work at the General Assembly. I worked with just some of the most amazing people, negotiators, one of who just passed away a few weeks ago, Senator Tony Rand, an incredible mentor who really 
along with Senator Bass and I took me under their wing and, you know, I got a front seat to, you know, watching some of the most incredible debates and how to manage people in conversations and, and negotiating tactics and things. And it was just, it was incredible. No, I get it. And it's also, quite frankly, it's made me tougher and stronger. You know, it's not, you don't get to pick your path all the time. Right. Right. But you got to equip yourself and strengthen yourself to, to win with the cards that you're dealt. Right. And, yeah. and keep it moving. And, and I see that throughout, throughout your, your career. Before chatting further with Tanya about her journey from Eastern North Carolina to Washington, D.C., we'd like to take a moment to highlight a partner that's also committed to Greenville, North Carolina and its community, Biden Health. Biden Health is a nonprofit academic rural health care system reaching more than 1.4 million people across 29 counties in North Carolina. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, Biden Health has partnered with local community leaders across North Carolina to spread accessible information and resources to low-trust communities. COVID-19 has not gone away, but we can all help. Biden urges you to protect yourself and others by wearing a mask, keeping six feet apart, washing your hands, or using hand sanitizer. For more information, visit BidenVerified.com or call free helpline at 252-847-8000. Again, that number is 252-847-8000. One of the things that I've been interested in and hopeful in our conversation, when you look back, what advice would you give with people that are thinking about social activism blended with how to make change in politics, right? So mm-hmm. a big topic right now is the, the construct of systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's ways to do it. People can protest, people can lobby, people can do different things. From your perspective in working in government and working in the powers of government, how do some of the systemic things get changed? Like what advice would you give? Yeah, this is interesting. because uh, It's a conversation we're having around my house and my friend group right now the difference between activism and policymaking and all the tools that are in the box of things that are needed to actually make sustainable change. And a lot of the conversation we've been having has been around defund the police. So when I first heard that slogan, I was like, oh God, right? Like what that's getting ready to unleash, the, the power that it Gives, can give to the opposition, the inaccuracy of the slogan versus what is actually meant by it. And when we talked about, uh, friends of mine talked about the difference between advocates who are often committed to a certain thing in a certain way in a certain time and the urgency of it and policymaking, which means uh, it's a lot more about knowing and understanding the landscape. You have to, and this is politics as well, you have to know who you're dealing with. You have to know the push and pull. You have to understand the levers of power. You have to understand who you're dealing with. You need to see behind you and in front of you. And all of those things that come into strategizing, you have to be able to message. It's so important. And you can give away an entire argument. You can give away an entire movement on bad messaging. So it's, all of those things that come into policymaking, and it's funny throughout, I didn't really understand that when I started, and I most especially didn't understand, I'd love to at some point talk to you about this as well, the power of communications and the, the power of 
all the elements of communication, the things that go into a policy argument before I, that get people talking about it, that people all of a sudden have an opinion about something because they've been hearing about it. And that's not just coincidence, right? There's a build there and who is saying it and when they're saying it and where they're saying it and where you're reading it and where you're hearing it. And even when the opposition, knowing who to approach and how far they can go, if they can go anywhere at all. One of the great lessons I learned working for Joe Biden was he said, first of all, you know, your first conversation should never include an ask, right? You want to get to know people. You want to understand them because the other thing you don't want to do is ask someone something when they can't or charge them with something so that they can't get to yes. Mm -hmm. Because then you don't have a dance partner. You don't have someone that you can work with. You don't have a relationship that you can rely on. And you don't have someone for the future, right? Like there are things that some people just can't do or they don't agree with. The other thing about politics that I've always found so interesting is people come in and they're like, we just need to do it. And I'm like, that's so great. I'm like, if it were that easy, trust me, that it would be it would have been done by now, right? But the problems are hard and they're complex and they're the devil's always in the details and you're asking people to give on things that really you know, mean a lot to them and their communities. And oftentimes that means going slower than people want to. And so you have to know and understand all of those things to make progress in policymaking. And that's not a burden that advocates that you see, and I don't mean all advocates, so I don't want to give advocacy a bad bad name, but I would say more extreme advocates don't fully embrace. And in those instances, I'm like, well, if it's all or nothing, a lot of times it's nothing. And is that where you want to be? You made a lot of powerful points. And I think that the one piece of advice from uh, Vice President Biden, right, is build a relationship first before you have an ask. That applies to business. That applies mm -hmm. to politics. That applies to really any situation where you're trying to build a coalition or a network, mm -hmm. right? Because people create activation with people that they trust. And that's right. even if we're across the table at a negotiation or, or what have you. And I think the other point that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is messaging and words matter, yeah. right? And, and the example you use of defund the police, right? It's like, personally, as a business person, as somebody that's an entrepreneur, I really can't get behind things that are never going to happen. Like I'm listening and I'm like, okay, how does that work exactly? Sure. Right? And right. then we spend- Man, you and I are going to get talked about when this right. podcast comes out. <laughs> exactly right. They're like, what is he talking about? He should defund the police. I was like, what we should do is get crooked cops off the force, which is right. like what, what everybody wants, right? Nobody wants racist police that are killing American people. Right. In our case, right, more disproportionately, uh, by percentage, African-American people. Yeah, right? and people it's taken everyone off message. You've allowed a whole new narrative to develop, and you also allow people who are in opposition to you to be, to be lazy, to not meet the moment, to not have to answer, because you've said something that is deemed so extreme and can be characterized in such dangerous ways that you, you allow, you, you've offered a place of comfort for people to go. I want to seize on that and like let that marinate, right? That when you're off message, you give people the opportunity to be lazy 
because they can seize on the extreme view and then allow themselves room to do nothing. To do nothing. That is like, I think as a citizen, that is the last 50 years of our politics. And that it is so difficult to push the ball forward because the extreme views take all the oxygen in the media and the headlines and different things. And so you're now, if we bring the present day, right, you're working at a very large organization, SoftBank, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and it seems now, tell me about the role at, at SoftBank and kind of the difference between now private sector, public sector, but you're still relating to the public sector, right? Like you're working for a for-profit organization, right? Sure. But now you're, you're still dealing in legislative affairs. Sure. And, it, and they're quite different. So what I do at SoftBank, it's really an interesting job. So just a little bit about SoftBank, first of all. It's not a bank. It's not a Chinese bank. We get that a lot. Um, <laughs> it's, actually, it's a number of different things. It's actually a quite well-known uh, telecom company in Japan. It's headquartered in Japan. But there are also several funds that SoftBank has, one of which is quite large. It's the largest, actually, it's a vision fund, which is a $100 billion fund, and that's billion with a B, that invests in technologies around the world. And some say disruptive technologies, but I'd say tech-enabled services and products that lead to greater efficiencies or that are just ground, you know, groundbreaking in different ways or life-altering um, in some instances. So we've invested in uh, companies like Uber. We've invested in some that you've heard of before, some that you've never heard of, some that you will hear of that are really interesting and exciting. And so there is the venture capital side of that. And the work that I do, actually, a few years ago, SoftBank decided, listen, we're investing a lot of money in these companies through the Vision Fund. Uh, the investments were $100 million minimum. These are late stage, growth stage companies that they were investing in. And the thought was, we should invest more than capital. And so, you know, folks might not understand a lot about uh, venture capital investing. I'm still learning a good bit about it. But the, there's a good bit of work that's done on the backside of the investment, not just money. It's advice and expertise from people who run businesses successfully. But one of the things that is not often present is someone to help them with interactions with government mm. and communications. And so SoftBank, smartly, I think, put together a group of talented individuals who could provide that sort of counsel to all the portfolio companies that were in their portfolio. So what I do is I help the companies that we've invested in with their interaction with government. Some of them have their own full government affairs teams. Government has, there's a lot of power in policy uh, and regulation. And if you're not considering it as part of your business plan, you can be surprised or even, or it could be the death of your business. It could also mean a huge opportunity. Government has one of the largest employers and contractors, you know, in the country. They are the largest, I can say one of, and there's a lot of opportunity there. And if you don't know about it, if you're not following it, if you don't know that you're a good fit for it, and it's a long process contracting with the government, um, there are opportunities there that you could miss. That is powerful. And as a representative of SoftBank, you guys have done something really phenomenal right in this moment where we're dealing with a lot of racial inequity in terms of police violence, brutality, but also when you think about entrepreneurship 
there's a big disparity of venture capital dollars that people of color don't get a chance to have access to. And SoftBank has made a pretty significant decision to try to be on the front end of of changing that narrative. Could you share a little bit about the $100 million fund that SoftBank created? And then once you do that, we'll segue into turning the script and letting you ask anything that you'd like of me, background, entrepreneurship, some of the companies I'm working on, and I will keep the dialogue going. Sure. Yeah. And it's funny because this conversation will turn on a lot of things that we just talked about, about networking, about being the only one, about diversity and inclusion, about what happens and what you learn based on where you come from and what in your experience. But to answer your question directly, what SoftBank has done is we've recently announced the creation of a $100 million fund that will exclusively fund technology startups that are created by founders of color. And founders of color is specifically defined as African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Native Americans. And that is a very specific thing because a lot of times when you talk about underrepresented minorities, a lot there are a lot of minorities <laughs> um, that work in the tech world, but many of them aren't underrepresented. And so this fund was created in response to a lot of what's going on, the very important conversations that we're having on this very pivotal time in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. And what is something that is widely known, but, and is receiving more attention now than ever before leading up to this work is that minority founders are, well, minorities are underrepresented in venture capital on both sides. So in terms of actual investors, in terms of founders, so who gets the money and how they come into the network, there's a lot of mystery around venture capital in general, but the demographics of the startup world are changing and more more minority founders are entering the space. And then they're running into the same problems that traditionally uh, minorities have run into, which is access to capital, whether it's the inability to access it through traditional means, through bank loans, through uh, credit, the amount of credit uh, that they receive. Uh, sometimes the terms of deals are quite different. Just lack of familiarity with the systems that the institutions actually provide money, flat out discrimination <laughs> and bias. And the problem in venture capital really is because deals and things are often generated through networks is the lack of network and social networking um, with the individuals who write the checks. And they all come from very uh, narrow backgrounds um, and certain schools and certain organizations that they work for. And so this is SoftBank's effort to try to address that um, through the fund, but also through some supporting work that we're doing to try and address and bring attention to access to capital issues at large, but also a self-examination. And the CEO of our group wrote an incredible letter that spoke to this and said, this can't happen without us examining ourselves. And we, like many in the venture capital industry, lack diversity. We have dedicated ourselves to changing that. And so we're in the process of doing that. And I have the privilege of working on the project and helping with the external outreach and talking to people who've been doing this work, trying to help source the pipeline, find founders of color, tell them about what we're doing and work with organizations who are already working with and doing incredible work. And so as I was 
going through my network to kind of figure out who and reading some articles and stuff. And I always try and look to North Carolina, see what's going on in North Carolina. I see this name and I'm like, Donald Thompson. I was like, wait a minute, who's this guy? Like, <laughs> Donald Thompson. I think I went to church with him when I was, <laughs> I think my friend Mary Michelle, like, worked with him and introduced me to him when I was, like, 16. Like, literally, I looked you up on LinkedIn. And actually, I saw uh, your company first doing these amazing things. I was like, this is so incredible. Where was this in Raleigh when I was there? Like, this is like everything I wanted to do. It's like the comms, the, it's the government affairs, it's the crisis counseling, it's diversity. It's like, like, where were these people, right? And lo and behold, like, I got a relationship with a guy who's the CEO. I don't know, just, you know. Reach out and be like, hey, and you were gracious, very gracious in responding. And I, one of the things I had said that I wanted to do was just to talk to you and understand how you sort of got to where you are and the work that you're doing, which is you seem to be wearing you know, 10 different hats sure. <laughs> and from all accounts doing it well. So I really was curious about that. And particularly as I'm embarking on this work with the Opportunity Growth Fund at SoftBank, the diversity and inclusion piece. And so yeah. I see that you're an author and you're a public speaker and you've got the podcast and you run this company. And I just, it was fascinating. So um, I'm glad to have a chance to ask you about it and hear more. So one of the things that, and I appreciate that, I think the, how did I get here? Similar to your story, it was really taking advantage of doors that opened to me. Right. And so in leaving school, I had a bunch of really interesting jobs with not a lot of upside, a lot of experiential opportunities. But my first break came in 1996, my big break, if you will. And I started to work in sales with uh, my mentor and, and good friend now, Grant Willard, as employee number seven in a technology firm. And right. I worked with him hand in hand. And I was the sales guy. He was the product magic. And we grew that company until it was sold in 2006, 10 years later, to Adobe Systems in San Jose. Oh, and that wow. experience of working on a transaction, Grant certainly was the lead of it, but I got to participate. He let me be a part of the, the negotiation and the learning. And Adobe certainly a big brand in the tech space. Mm-hmm. And so when they bought the company, they only wanted to buy the technology and some of the engineers. And so Grant went with that team and became an employee of Adobe. And so we had about half of the company that they didn't want. And it was an IT technology services firm that I became the president and CEO at 36 years old. And Grant provided this opportunity of a lifetime in that he allowed myself and some of the other employees that were there at the time to do a private buyout of the company. And Grant was the note holder. So we basically got a chance to buy a company based on the profits of that company. And there were 16 of us in 2005, 2006 is when this occurred. And so fast forward 10 years, we'd grown the company from 16 people to about 140 people. And we then exited that firm. We got bought out by a company called KPIT out of Pune, India. Mm -hmm. And that company was very big, billion dollar company, IT engineering, software, computer design, that kind of thing. And the the CEO of that company, Kishore, said, Don, I got to tell you something. We only want the engineering services part of your business. Well, we had this small little marketing technology part as well as this larger part. And so, again, we sold part of the company and then we spun out another little group called ICI Digital that was working with Adobe technology. And we were basically an implementer of Adobe's tech and different things like that. 
So the long and the short is that that company, we grew from about five to 10 people to 100 people and was sold to Behringer Capital in 2017. And that company was acquired by Behringer Capital, the same folks that own Adweek. So when you think about marketing and advertising and things yeah. like that, so that company, ICI Digital, is now Blue Acorn ICI is the name mm -hmm. of that, that new company. And a friend of mine, Greg Boone, now runs that business. And Greg worked for me for a number of years. And I was the chairman of the board when we sold and Greg became the CEO. And so he got a chance to take it the next step. During that period of time, I knew that I was not meant for a large organization. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm about a year and, and two months for any company that's got like 10,000 people. Right. Because I got lots of ideas, and sometimes in a big company, they don't want to hear all your ideas all at once. Right. Uh, but I was looking for what I want to do next, and in 2015 is when I invested in what is now Walk West. And so Brian Honorio, our founder, it's a computer science uh, degree from NC State, one designer, and I put some money in and some time, and we grew that business from 20, 2015 to now, 2020. Right. $300,000 in revenue to where we're probably $6 million, $7 million in revenue. And we're a small digital consultancy, but our clients are pretty amazing, right? And so right. we do all the marketing for the North Carolina State Fair. AstraZeneca and Big Pharma is a client of ours. North Carolina State is a client of ours. UNC Rams Club is a client of ours. Uh, Republic Wireless, some of the folks like that. MNF Bank, uh, African American uh, Bank in Durham is yeah. Chose us. There's a tech company in Boston called Wasabi that's doing some amazing things. So we've been really fortunate and proud that we're able to grow a digital consultancy and attract some of the, the clients that we have. And what we've been able to do different is as an entrepreneur, I understand and have experienced buying marketing technology, marketing services, and I understand the desire for that real return on investment. That right. how do you link creativity kind of with the drive and the, and the goals. Right. And then over that period of time, I'm probably on the board of about four to five different companies as an angel investor and work with other firms in the area in entrepreneurship and different things like that. Right. So that's four that's, to five minute backstory. That's incredible. Uh, look at Pitt County. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Rose. I know. Exactly. Uh, well, I've got to tell you, so I, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I'd like to borrow some money. <laughs> yes. uh, okay. Right. Uh, just for some ideas that I have. Uh, <laughs> SoftBank thing might not last forever. Uh, but uh, I think that's incredible. I just love for you for a little bit, because I read about this and I just thought it was, I was curious, uh, just to unpack digital consultancy. Uh, what, is, what exactly is that? So a lot of times people think about, let's say you need a new website. I'm going to go find somebody to build a website. Right. Let's say you have uh, a PR need in crisis management. I'm going to find somebody in PR and crisis management. Or if you need strategy for your message and communication. What we did is we took all of the digital communication needs of a company or a nonprofit and got the best of breed skills together and then layered on top of that the business strategy of why you need to use these skills. So we basically give you the thinking and the strategy of a McKinsey or an Accenture or a Deloitte, mm -hmm. but we do the work with clients to build out their digital footprint so that we basically are able to ensure that there's no finger pointing with regard to results. Right. Typical consultancy will give you a big idea, charge you a lot of money, hope you make it. Right. right? We want to give you a big idea and then work with you to implement it. Right. We want to work with you to teach your team how to implement some of the capacity and skills. If we build a video for you, we don't want to build a video that's just pretty and engaging and fun. 
we want to build a video that gets hundreds of thousands of end-to-end -end views. So we're going to do the data-driven research around the persona, the marketing, the launch plan, so that the video that you construct with us is also seen by the target market and right. change the behaviors that we want. So we're right. really big on big ideas with big results. Pretty, pretty diverse. And what we found is that we want to be the first phone call for clients when they have a communication challenge of any type. And then we can put together the team that they need to address that challenge. One of the things that led us, and you mentioned earlier, to our work with diversity and inclusion. I want to spend some time on that because I think that might be something that we want to pitch Absolutely. at SoftBank because we're doing it a little bit different. So when we're looking at DNI and how did we get there from a marketing firm, mm -hmm. the same messaging, persona research, behavioral understanding, testing to create a message that changes behavior for a brand you have to have that same thinking to work within an organization to change behavior that sticks and how we treat one another yeah. so we were already doing this research i was already getting asked to speak on dni topics so about a year ago we invested hundreds of thousands of dollars which is a significant amount for a small company sure. we spent four of our executives to be trained as certified diversity executives we built an e-learning platform and our first course is beyond the checkbox it's a five module dni course mm -hmm. we also partnered and built out tdm connect with which is a diversity inclusion mobile application platform to reinforce dni behaviors for large groups so let's say you got a hundred thousand employees we've created a mobile app that you now can track the dni behaviors you want to represent in your organization and you can gamify it people can get points you can flag it. You can take a picture of what you're doing. If you have coffee with somebody of a different ethnic group than you have before, you can take a picture of it. If you go to a different church, watch a different movie. Now, all of a sudden, you make DNI behavior fun and sticky because it's a part of your life. And then you can compete as a team on appropriate behaviors. We oh, I love that. And so that's ready to roll. That's in the App Store. Uh, it's in the Google Play Store. It'll be in the App Store next week. We're going through the final approvals. So right. What we've done, which we're excited about, and you can probably tell the, the inflection in my voice, sure. is we've looked at the DNI consulting, but we've underlay it with three-legged stool. Data-driven, so we do the research. Technology-enabled, because we want to give people tools right. that we can leverage when we leave, whether it's e-learning, micro-videos, right. whether it's our application, right? And then we have DNI experts that leverage and pull all that together. And so wow. we basically created a technology company that delivers DNI work. So we're a technology-enabled DNI consultancy, and that's what we're building. I love it. And so we think it is cutting edge. The other thing I'll tell you, and I won't name drop while we're recording, but offline I'll share with you. Sure. We've got three separate billion-dollar organizations that are vetting our tools right now. And by the time we would pitch to you, we would have two of the three already signed that are buying our e-learning tools, that are looking at our applications, as well as our consulting. And so what we're doing, instead of companies hiring a chief diversity officer, mm. we're building the chief diversity office for companies. So we're gonna go in and give them the blueprint so that they can do it themselves. We've created a certification program through our partner, IDC. They liked what we were doing so much, they carved out the state of North Carolina that we are the exclusive trainer of their diversity and inclusion certification. So now we can go into a company and we can now train your staff of how to take this work forward. 
So we're not going to sit there for two sure. years at $500 right. an hour. We're going to do a targeted engagement, create the momentum, train your team so that you now can build out your DNI practice within the culture, within the alignment, within the language of what you're doing. And so we've already done all the incorporation components and we're looking to spin this out in its own separate entity in about 30 days. And that we're waiting is because my experience as an angel and as an investor and a CEO is I want to have about five to seven clients because I don't want to have a discussion there about whether this works or not. Right. I want to say these Mark. are the profiles of the people that are already paying us money. You invest more money. This is how we're going to accelerate it. And so that's kind of the way that we want to think about it. I got to tell you, I love this for so many reasons. I think it's uh, brilliant, truly, because, well, first of all, race is hard. Talking about race is hard. It's uncomfortable. And it's really, and again, around language, like my very favorite thing when people do racist things is like, I'm not a racist, you know, <laughs> right? That's the first thing they say. Um, and, you know, and it's really, some of it is not about intent and it's not like the card carrying clan member that engages in racist activity. Uh, it's not necessarily what we're talking about. So it is in systemic racism is even harder because it, by definition, it is woven into everything that you do so much so that you don't even, you're not even aware of it. And if you're not on the receiving end of it, and especially in our sort of segregated society, you don't have to know people, you don't have to live with people, you don't have to go to school with people, you don't have to, like, there's so much that you don't have to know. And if it's not, if you don't have to know it, you often don't know it. And it's also always a very interesting thing, because uh, I I just feel that because of our history that African-Americans know a lot more about the history and the lives and things of white Americans. And so it's a very interesting place to enter. But the other thing that I love about what you just said um, reminds me of a very simple fact, which is that culture trumps strategy. You can have the greatest, right? You can come up with the best plan. And if you don't get a culture, then the best laid plans and monies and resources put toward it, you know, will That's and people will revert back to what they do, what they know. And so incentivizing it and making it fun and people kind of even learning by mistake <laughs> or doing something because they want to win, you know, it's right. all, all of those motivators, right? You know, is really incredible and doing it with technology, uh, which allows, you know, for you to work in sort of a safe space, as you said, but also makes it very available to you on an ongoing basis. You don't have to sit down in the three hour diversity and training that you right. got to do and you take your stuff to read while you're there because it's not really for you because you have lots of diverse friends and stuff. So it's not really <laughs> talking, you know, like you've already lost before like people get there because you told exactly them they got to right. be somewhere for like five hours, you know once a year and this is when you have to think we're gonna do the same like blue eye green eye brown eye stuff so um right. <laughs> i just think it's fascinating um and and i'm excited to to learn more and hear more and i, I think it's um wonderful uh yeah. that you thinking about this and and actually activating uh the work that right. you've been doing through uh this medium it sounds exciting it is and it's 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 hard work because the conversations are deep and, and significant, but we do feel like we have an opportunity in this moment and why we've put the investment behind it to get it started to be a point of difference because we started working on this over a year ago. So this wasn't in response to what happened with George Floyd and some of the right. others that were recently impacted that lost their lives. It was more of us seeing kind of the diverse landscape that was coming regardless. 
Right. And then some of the most recent events have created a catalyst and we've been, we're ready enough, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like our tools are ready enough, right? We're yeah. telling our, our clients, our videos and our training, yeah. our platform are, are ready enough that we can be helpful tomorrow for companies that want to go into this thing. And one right. of the things, one of the clients that we're talking to about a 600 person technology firm based out of Austin. And one of the things that was really cool. And so we were pitching them on our stuff, on our tech piece, the e-learning, all the stuff. And they're like, we're into it. And oh, by the way, Don, if we like it, we're owned by a private equity firm that has 10 other firms. Right. And I was like, go on. You right? got my attention. You got my attention. <laughs> and so what we're finding is that the appetite for this kind of discussion is pretty significant. But the blueprint for people to know how to make change Mm -hmm. is still pretty limited. And that's really the key, right? Like we hear people all the time who said, who are genuine in their desire to do something. And this is comes back to the bit that you said, you know, about advocates and, you know, policymakers that we talked about. You're desperate for change. You want to do it. You have a group, a captive audience. You have people who genuinely want to make the leap. Um, How do you make it? easy for them like i said before if it was easy we would have done it right like so how do you break it down into small bites that are acceptable but but push people far enough to change and to acknowledge things and recognize things that they might not even have known about themselves unconscious bias is a really just important thing uh, right and i think it's incredible and i'm glad to know that you and other smart people are really working on this and bringing tools uh, to folks. Let me ask you this, and I'll I'll question back. How does a company with this fund, and I've probably got four or five companies, another company that I'll tell you about real quick, is a company called Grippers. And they're two former NC State football players that created a basically technology and apparel company. And so what does that mean, right? So you think about smart apparel that can give you the heat sensors of an athlete's heart rate, their dehydration level, things of that nature throughout the body. So it's a merge of athletic apparel and technology, right, Mm -hmm. blended together. And so they worked with the apparel school at the um, textile school, excuse me, at NC State. I sit on the board, they raised some money, but they need funding to take that next step, Mm African-American founders, and a a really great story, and, and product is pretty cool. What do we do with the ideas that I may have do I get them to you? Is there a formal process? Like, how do we get, how do we get into that swim lane, right, to tell sure. our story? Sure. And I can share the website with you uh, when we're done here, uh, and you can publicize it as you, as you see fit. But one of the things that the fund is doing is trying to open this up. And so very different from how other things work, people can submit through an open process. And so there are obviously some qualifications that you know, you you know would need to to meet. Sounds like you have with the being a technology enabled company and the founders, bonus points for not being in San Francisco or Silicon <laughs> <laughs> Valley, <laughs> you know. But to, and you can pitch through the and someone will evaluate, take a look at the company and the products. And so as I said before, the idea is to open the lane. So it's exposure on both sides. So it's exposure with companies that may normally not get a chance to pitch because they're not in the network. They didn't go to 
the Ivy League schools um, <laughs> that are not called upon. So, I mean, we're not saying that, what we wanna do is broaden the networks. We're not saying that networks are a bad thing. We're just saying that networks can be, you know, are exclusive. exclusive. And if you're looking for the best deals, this is not charity. This is not just saying that they're, you know, we've gotten some comments, not directly to us, but in the media where folks were saying, why is it that there has to be a separate fund? You're trying to say that it's not good enough for the other funds. Are you trying to say that, you know, why are people offering mentorship? Are you trying to say that there are deficiencies? Are you trying to say that folks aren't good enough? And one of the things that one of the folks I'm working with said very expressly is this is not less than. This is not about less than. This is about sourcing the best deals and making sure that you have access to a wide swath of like the deals that are out there. And because minority founders are growing in number, because the perspective that, you know, you get from hiring people that are different and yep. different in ways that are different more than just race. You're talking about perspective here and understanding customers and customer needs, being able to look forward because of your experiences. We want those people in front of us. We want to be talking to all of them. And if the only way that you get deals is via a friend of a friend who yeah. happens to be in your network, you're missing out. You could be missing out on a lot. We want the best deals. And so, um, That's awesome. like I am, uh, this won't be the last, right. That we talk. Cause I, I'm just glad that we reconnected. I think it's good smart there's a lot we'll be able to do together i've um was recently asked to do a column each week for wral tech which is our local tech i remember wral <laughs> yeah i was really honored to do that and they have like three hundred fifty thousand monthly readers and so one of the things that i'll talk about in my first article is what you guys are doing at softbank because i want one of the things that was cool for you to say is like that you want other markets to be represented in this fund also, right? Not just typical, right? San Francisco, Austin, different things like that. Not that they're not amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I think there's other amazing places where there's talented people. Right. And so anything I can do to build the Raleigh ecosystem, I'm a super fan to do, right? And, okay. and go from there. So I know we're hitting our time. I probably took more, more time of mine than, than yours. What other mm -hmm. questions can I answer for you as we wind down? And, and call this first session around. So, no, I, I gotta tell you, I'm just grateful uh, to have had the opportunity to talk to you. And so, and it's about helping each other and about especially the people that, that we know that are doing good work and exposing uh, them as well. And so I just, I just wanna offer that to, to you and I'd be appreciative of your offer to help me as well and encourage everybody to really do that. I mean, this is how the work gets done and amazing things happen, you know, right inside your own network. And I didn't even know. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Activating your own network. Tanya, I'm proud of you. I appreciate your time. And this has been great stuff. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, Looking forward to talking cool. to you again. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll be in your feed every week with new episodes from entrepreneurs who inspire you to do more. So be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you have a minute, give us a rating and a review as well. This podcast is edited and produced by Earphone. If you're looking for more information on how full service podcast production can amplify your voice, build your community, visit Earfluence.com.
Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson Podcast.